0: morning, Northbrook. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. We're not even done with January and we're already out of chapter 1. That's amazing. Maybe not to you, but to me it's amazing. I think I know I've told the immersion group that I lead that... uh, uh, I spent six years in Revelation um, at at fellowship and um, man it's pretty common to go four or five years in other books um, so the fact that we're in chapter two of Galatians after three weeks is I'm just stunned so you know it's just an amazing thing I'm maybe not stunned but it I'm glad that we're moving along here. We're going to read verses um, 1 to 10 of chapter 2. And then we'll talk about what's going on here. There's some, uh, Paul says some fun stuff in Galatians that, uh, as I said, I said to Terry this week, it appeals to my crude nature. So I, I try to be, you know, respectable in things as a pastor. But there's, there's this side of me that's quite crude that I try not to let out because Terry's been helping to refine me over the years. But they still come through. And uh, this, this section has one of those potential crude areas that kind of makes me laugh when I read it. But you might pick up on it if you're thinking about what's going on. And, and if not, I'll help you figure it out later on. So we begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 10. Then after 14 years, this is picking up from where he was uh, and his visits to Cephas or or Peter. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord." As we talked about last week, Paul has been accused by Jewish teachers of proclaiming a gospel that is defective. Opponents of Paul believe that in order to gain acceptance with God, you had to be circumcised. You must not only believe in the atoning work of Jesus, but also submit to this physical right and observe the law of Moses on an ongoing basis. In practice, this means that one must become a Jew. That was the point of circumcision. Circumcision wasn't just something that you had to do because God required it. In their system, in their way of thinking, you had to become a Jew to become a a Christian in order to be one of God's people. And I want to point this out again. I know I've said it twice already, but I want to say it again. That this teaching that these false teachers were communicating did not just apply to the issue of initial salvation. And again, that's the way many people approach Galatians. Is that what Paul is concerned about is a gospel for initial salvation. that, That he's pushing back against the keeping of the law and the, um, and the right of circumcision for salvation. But Paul's actual primary intent in this letter is not about initial salvation, although that's part of it. His primary concern is the issue of after salvation. How does a person... Maintain acceptance with God after salvation. And that very question should kind of be something that's pushing back. You should be pushing back against the question of how does one maintain salvation? I mean, how does someone maintain acceptance with God after salvation? There should be something in you that recoils at that question. Because the reality is There's nothing you can do to maintain salvation. You're either saved or you're not saved. You can't maintain it. Now, that's not to say then that you can live however you want to live and be uh, lawless in the sense of don't have to care what you do. But what you do does not earn you salvation. And what you do does not maintain your salvation. Salvation is a work of God. It is initiated by God, it is accomplished by God, and it is sustained by God. Not by human efforts. Paul wants these believers, and I'm going to keep saying these words, Paul wants these believers to understand that acceptance and standing with God is by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone and I for the last 15 to 20 years have not been able to understand why we preach by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and then say by the way keep the law But some traditions seem to die hard. Righteousness with God is based solely in the obedience of Jesus. And that obedience of Jesus has been credited to the believer. We have a formal term from this for this that some of you have heard. It's called imputation. Imputation is the crediting of Christ's righteousness to you and your unrighteousness to him. Your sin was put on him. And again, uh, there's a lot of stuff I'm going to keep repeating because repetition aids learning. And I don't know what else to say, so I'll just keep repeating. When Jesus died on the cross, the record of your offense, according to Colossians, was nailed to the cross. The record of your offense against the law was nailed to the cross. Your sin was placed on Jesus 2,000 years before you existed. That means all of your future sin was put on Jesus. Every sin you would ever commit was put on Jesus, on the cross. Jesus does not stand in heaven today or sit in heaven today and when somebody comes to believe in him, God goes, okay, here you go Jesus, this goes on you now. You say, well that's a stupid thought. It is a stupid thought. But practically that's how we think. Otherwise, we would never question if our sin has been forgiven. But when Jesus died, he bore our stripes. When Jesus died, our sin was placed on him. When Jesus died, the wrath of God was expressed on him for our sin. He does not experience the wrath of God today. And none of the wrath of God was reserved. It was all expressed on him for, salve- for our salvation. When we believe, it, is, uh, it becomes in effect when we believe. But there is no wrath reserved for now. And there is no sin that has not already been forgiven. And that's crucial to understand. That you stand before God now. There's no wrath left for you. There's no sin left to be forgiven. Because you stand in the obedience of jesus before the father and you may say well then why do i have to ask for forgiveness of sin every time i sin i'd like to know why you're doing that too but that's for another day you stand forgiven in the righteousness of christ i'm not saying i don't understand i'm saying i don't understand why you're still asking if it's already been forgiven. My sin was credited to Jesus and His righteousness was credited to mine. There is no card in God's filing system as I was taught that He reaches into and pulls out and looks at it and when I confess and ask forgiveness he then crosses it out and says okay that's taken care of and he puts the card back in the filing when I believe God took the card out and it already said paid in full at the cross and I went in the deepest sea And it's gone as far as the east is from the west. But now, in this church, there are Judaizers coming along the scene and saying, "Uh, uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, you Gentiles. Oh, yeah, sure you believed in Jesus, but you're not saved. You're not one of God's people. You're not one of God's children. You need to be circumcised. And aren't you keeping the law? You can't be God's children if you're not keeping the law. You have to keep the law. And they say, well, Paul, Paul came and taught us this. Ah, yeah, we've heard of him. We've heard of him. He doesn't understand. He said we don't have to keep the law anymore. Yeah, well, he doesn't respect the law. The law is not important to him. Well, he's a Jew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of questions about Paul. I don't think he really understands what's going on. You guys, we've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law. The saying, Terry, this week, just kind of cracks me up in this part. Because, you know, there's good things to being a contrarian they just are. You know, these Judaizers come in and say, you've got to be circumcised. And the non-contrarians would be going, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay, we'll be circumcised. And the contrarians are all going, ah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we have to do this. So by the time Paul writes them, some of them have already submitted to circumcision and some of them have been contrarians. And you know what the contrarians are doing? They're all sitting back going, told you so. And and the ones who submitted are going oh man why did we do that but there's this division there's this problem and they're attacking Paul and saying his message is false so Paul's defending his gospel he's defending the gospel he's preaching and the way he first defended it as we talked about last week was to say this is where it was sourced in. You guys are insinuating that, that my message was contrived by me. That the gospel I preached, I just kind of dreamed this up. You're insinuating or you're accusing me of being pressured by other people to preach this. You're just wrong. I preach this because Jesus himself said to me go preach this i will preach nothing else and i don't care what men say and i don't care about these judaizers jesus told me to preach this and he commissioned me as an apostle to the gentiles So I don't require circumcision and I don't require keeping of the law because it destroys the gospel that Jesus called me to preach and commissioned me to preach. And Paul's heart is to be faithful to Jesus, whatever the cost may be. Now in these verses today, it appears that he's responded to some accusations that he was trying, in essence, to climb the corporate ladder of the apost- apostolic church of that time. Well, he's, he, he went down and he got buddy-buddy with Peter and James and John and, and the Jerusalem church. And he went down there and he got in good with them and then he went out and he, he preached other things. And he wasn't really honest with them about what he was preaching. But he's trying to get up there in the pecking order. And he's calling himself an apostle. And he's trying to throw some authority around here. So you've seen how many times he's gone down there now, haven't you? So Paul comes back against that here. He states that he has no desire to please men. He has no desire to To bow the knee to human beings. He's not going to do anything that goes contrary against what Jesus has told him to say and to do. And he goes on to explain his past contact with these church leaders in order to take away the ammunition of those who say that he learned his defective gospel from human beings. So in chapter 2 at the beginning, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Earlier in verse 18 of chapter 1, he speaks of going up after three years. He comes to know Christ. He has a period in there where he's learning and he's, he's starting to teach the gospel to other people. Three years later, he goes up to Jerusalem he meets Cephas. He meets Peter. It's interesting that he calls him Cephas here. Cephas is Peter's Jewish name. He's, he's, he's trying to emphasize the Jewishness of Peter to, the, to these Gentiles who, who are being misled by Judaizers. People who say that the Jewish system is the way to go. Yes, Jesus, but don't forget the Jewish system. Don't forget the Jewish law and practices so Paul comes back and says yeah I met with I met with Cephas the guy who's Jewish you know I met with him the guy who's kind of like the main guy we talked in Jerusalem not Rome by the way Peter was not based in Rome Peter died up in Rome but he was not based in Rome he was down in Jerusalem I met with him 15 days we had two weeks we spent two weeks together. We talked. It's good talk. And then I just moved on. I didn't stay there. I didn't I didn't look for his approval. I just talked with him. I met him, went on. I went to Syria. I went to Cilicia. What's interesting here is he, he doesn't say that Peter disapproved anything. He simply says he talked with him for 15 years and he went on. I mean, 15 days and then he went on. 14 years. After 14 years from his conversion, 11 years later, he comes back to Jerusalem. There's a lot of debate amongst the smart people out there in relation to when this times out. And I'm, I'm going to, I've settled and I've been settled for a long time that this was. Um, Uh, because he speaks of a revelation that he received that it was a revelation that came through Agabus to tell him about collecting funds for the poor in Jerusalem because there's a famine so Paul does that with Barnabas they collect the money and Paul and Barnabas and Titus at that time in Acts go down to Jerusalem this is prior to the Jerusalem council but Paul has already had ministry with the churches in Galatia but Paul doesn't say that he changed his message in any way he doesn't say that he was disapproved by Peter in any way and now he comes back 11 years later to Jerusalem and this time he meets privately with the apostles and specifically he meets privately with Peter James and John James the half-brother of Jesus and John those who are seen to be the pillars of the church, those who are seen to be influential in the church—it's kind of funny how he says that. They're influ- influential, but they really don't. That doesn't matter to me. I really don't care. Paul puts those kind of statements out there. In, in 1 Corinthians four, Paul says that um, that he's responding to some who are criticizing his preaching. I wish I was as secure as Paul is. I'm a little too insecure. But Paul is so secure, he just says, he writes him and says, I really don't care your, your, what your opinion of my preaching is. You, you, it, it means nothing to me. What matters to me is, does God approve of my preaching? But your opinion doesn't matter to me. It would, how would you think that would go over today if a pastor stood up in front of the people and said, you know, I really don't care what you think of me and I don't care what you think of my preaching? get over yourself that wouldn't go over real big so i haven't tried that one but paul got away with that but he says his goal here in this section verse 2 i went up because of a revelation and set before them i laid out before them though privately before those who seemed influential the gospel that i proclaim among the gentiles in order to make sure i was not running or had not run in vain I sat down with these guys. I laid out my gospel because I wanted to make sure that I was not running in vain. Uh, when we first hear that phrase, it would seem that Paul's concern is that he's, maybe his gospel's messed up a little bit. Maybe he should be preaching circumcision. Maybe he should be preaching the law. So it sounds like he sat down with them and said, tell me, am I I preaching the wrong thing? Should I be requiring circumcision? Should I be telling them that they should keep the law? Does it sound that way to you? I wanted to make sure that I wasn't running in vain. I wanted to make sure that I had not run in vain. I wanted to make sure that my gospel was not messed up. To me, it comes across that way at first. But... That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I put my gospel out in front of them to make sure that it had the good housekeeping seal of the apostles and that it was approved so that I could go back out and say, you know what, guys? I'm going to preach you a gospel that the apostles approve. That goes completely against what Paul has been saying because Paul has been saying, I don't care what humans say. I don't care who disapproves. Jesus Approve this. So it would make no sense that all of a sudden Paul is sitting down with these guys and saying, is it okay? Is this right? Jesus told me this, I think. But is this right? In actuality, Paul is not concerned about doubts that he has about circumcision and law keeping. He was concerned about the opposite problem. Paul was concerned that these influential people might be promoting a defective gospel that was contrary to what Jesus taught Paul and that defective gospel would undermine his ministry. Paul went to Jerusalem to sit down with the influential people, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, and say, somebody out there is promoting circumcision and law keeping is it coming from jerusalem are you guys the guys who are saying this stuff because if you are this goes against what jesus told me and it needs to stop he wasn't looking for the apostles approval he didn't care about the apostles apostles approval he wanted to make sure that they were teaching the right thing so that his ministry was not being undermined. Let me give you some reasons why I believe this was Paul's uh, goal here. As I said earlier, he stated very clearly, he doesn't care what other people think about his position on the gospel. And he even says it here in this passage, they seem to be influential. Later in verse 6, they seem to be influential, but what they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't care. God doesn't show partiality. I don't care if they're influential. What matters to me is what Christ wants. So he wasn't concerned as to what others thought of his position in the gospel, and it would make no sense that he would want their approval. There's also a statement that he makes later in chapter 4 and verse 8 and following, if you'd like to turn there, to chapter 4 of Galatians. Where you get more clarity on this phrase, not running in vain. Verse 8 of chapter 4: Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, I think that's an interesting thing that he says there. Do you know Jesus? That's the question we ask today. Do you know Jesus? Paul would correct that and say, no, are you known by Jesus? Are you known by the Father? Because there will be many who say, Lord, Lord. And the Father will say, I never knew you. So Paul is wanting to be clear. It's not a question of whether or not you think you know God. Does God know you? And that gets into something else that I can't chase this morning. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. And this is the the key phrase. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul cannot understand why they would turn back to worthless enslaving teachings, specifically the observance of days and months and seasons and years, which were part of the Jewish system. Sabbath days, feast days, certain months had to be observed. Certain years had to be observed. What Paul is questioning in chapter 4 is how these people who were freed from the slavery of serving worthless gods how can they now want to go back and enslave themselves to the God of the Judaizers? Because the God of the Judaizers is as false a God as the worthless gods they had before they ever heard of Christ. And in that context, what he's expressing is his concern that his ministry with them may have been in vain or of no value Because they have now abandoned grace. They have now abandoned Christ to follow works righteousness. And so everything he taught them, everything he communicated to them, all the time he invested in them is now worthless. If they're going to walk away from Christ and they're going to walk away from grace and they're going to follow a false god. They're no better off than they were before he met them. If they're going to follow a false God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, I came and I I preached among you like a master architect. A master builder. I laid a foundation that was in Christ Jesus. Anyone who follows after me needs to build upon that foundation with the same materials or materials that are 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 of the same value as the foundation of Jesus gold, silver, and precious stones. If anyone comes and builds with wood, hay, stubble, it's going to burn. It's useless. And that foundation has no value in the long term if everything that's built upon it is wood, hay, stubble. It moves away from who Jesus is. It takes the listener away from the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus and the standing one has in Jesus. And it becomes vain. So so Paul's... Argument here in Galatians chapter 2, when he comes before the disciples, before the apostles, James, John, and Peter, and lays out his gospel, is to say, This is the gospel that Jesus gave me. I want to make sure that when I'm going out there to the Gentiles to preach the gospel, you guys are not teaching a false gospel back here that others are then going to go out and undermine everything that's accomplished. In the ministry that God has given to me, He's there to rebuke them if necessary. A final evidence found back in chapter 2 here of Galatians Titus. Verse 3 But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul is setting forth this gospel in front of them and saying, Guys, Peter, James, and John, I want you to understand something. I've got Barnabas here, I got Titus here. The gospel I preach doesn't require circumcision. Titus is not circumcised. So, how do you guys feel about that? Got a problem with that? You got a problem that Titus isn't circumcised? Now, some of the Judaizers had come in. I love this language. and This this is where the crude part comes out to me. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we might have in Christ Jesus so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. They came in secretly and spied out. How do you spy out to find out if somebody's circumcised? You know, That was the one that kind of caught my attention there. I said that to Terry, and she said, bathhouses. He said, yeah. See, they didn't have their own indoor plumbing. They had public bathhouses that they would go to to clean up and socialize and things, and they wouldn't wear clothes in the bathhouses. So what Paul is saying here is these Judaizers were like, ah, we can get him, we can get him. He's going over to the bathhouse. Yeah, is he circumcised? Oh, he's not circumcised. That's what's going on there. That's the spying out part that I find kind of humorous that Paul puts in there for us. He didn't say they found out he wasn't circumcised. They spied out. And that is espionage idea there that they're sneaking around trying to figure out if Titus is circumcised or not. But they started to stir up this controversy and they were demanding that Titus be circumcised. And Paul says, we didn't give an inch to these guys. We didn't back off a bit. We said, leave him alone. And the result of that was there was no correction of Paul's teaching. There was no uh, pushback from the influentials. Instead, The result of Paul's meeting with them was that the leaders affirmed that Paul's teaching was the true gospel of Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul set out his gospel before them, said, this is what Jesus told me. I want to make sure that you guys are not undermining my ministry by teaching other things that are not true. And by the way, Titus here isn't circumcised and I don't give a rip what those guys over there are saying. What do you make of that? Paul says they extended the right hand of fellowship and said we're on the same page. We're teaching the same thing. We teach the same gospel that you teach. As I thought about this, what Paul says here, and as I was reflecting on these verses, there's some things that stood out to me. You know, it's, it's amazing. I, I, there are so many times I sit back and say, how long have I been teaching this? And for the first time, I'm seeing this. It happens over and over again. It doesn't change these days. It doesn't change the theology. It doesn't change um, direction, the practice or the practical side of it. But it it well it does sometimes, but I mean it doesn't change my core beliefs, but there's just stuff that comes out kind of percolates up and there were a couple things that did in relation to the life of the church as I was reading through this and studying it. one of them is my view of Paul has changed and, and this may have come to my mind because of the passage that I was supposed to pray about this week. For a long time, I have viewed Paul as uh, what is commonly referred to as a church planter type. There's church planters, and then there's pastors. You know, that's kind of the way that it's structured these days. And church planter types are, are the guys who go in, and they go into a, an area where theoretically the gospel is not being preached, but that isn't always true. But they go into an area, and they start a Bible study, and they gather people together, and eventually it incorporates into a church, and then they find a pastor who comes in, and he takes over the church long term, and the church planter moves on to another area and starts another church somewhere else, which then is repeated. I prefer the model where a mother church starts planting out other churches. But in, in a lot of circles, it's very uh, popular to have these church planters who go out. I've never viewed Paul, with that in mind, I've never viewed Paul as much of a shepherd. He was the hard-charging guy who went in, got people mad, got this group together, went on to the next place, and then would only write them back when there was a problem. Bad, 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 bad. What's wrong with you, Pastor? I started this off good. What are you guys messing around with? But, but no long-term investment in the life of that body. But, but with this passage, that's changed for me. And it really should have been an obvious thing a long time ago. What Paul is communicating here is he's not concerned only with the short-term establishing of Christians and churches. It's not a short-term endeavor to him. He's concerned about the long-term health of them as well. Like a shepherd, a long-term investment person, he didn't want those in his care to be led away into slavery. He didn't want them to be led into false doctrine. You think about all the places that Paul went and all the churches, that, all the cities where he was part of establishing churches. And still years later, he's concerned about what's happening there. And he's writing them as friends and he's writing them as brothers and sisters. He speaks in 1 Corinthians about coming to them as a father mean actually in a negative way but he talks about individuals and how they're a blessing to him in Philippians he talks about two women who ministered side by side with him who are still in this church and and he's concerned about their individual welfare because they're at odds with one another and how that's going to affect the, the entire body It's not just issues that he's writing about. He's writing about specific people in specific situations because he's concerned about their specific needs. It was his desire that the people in these churches continue to grow in obedience to Jesus, to become more like Jesus and to love their Father in greater ways. He loved them. And he wanted to make sure that what had been started by the preaching of grace-centered and Christ-centered gospel teaching would continue in that direction. And so he writes them and he, he says to these different churches about the tears that he has for them as he prays for them. And he prays for them continually. He weeps over them. He talks about his heart for them and the future that he sees for them. That's not the language of a church planter. That's the language of someone who cares for the individuals that he's seen come to know Christ and he wants to further them in their walk with Christ. It's not just about the leaders of those churches, although it's partly about that, but he's concerned with all of the members of the churches. That's a shepherd's heart. In the second letter to the Corinthian churches, and this one was, was, it was helpful to me because this is a passage that I've tried to think through uh, since I've become a pastor and, and uh, become a shepherd. But in his, in his second letter to the Corinthian churches, he reminds them of the suffering he has endured for the sake of the gospel. You're probably familiar with that passage where he talks about how many days he spent in the ocean, how many days in the desert, how many times he was beaten, how he was stoned. Remember, are you familiar with that? Those, that's the part that people are familiar with. What, what most people aren't familiar with is how he ends that section. After listing off all of these horrible experiences that he's had in pursuing the Gospel and pursuing being obedient to Jesus. He says, and on top of that, as if all that wasn't bad enough, on top of that, I carry about with me daily the burden of the churches. Paul's heart is, you know what? All of that stuff pales in comparison to my heart for you and the burdens that you have that I want to bear with you. Paul's saying, I don't go anywhere. I don't spend any day where you're all not on my mind. That's a shepherd's heart. Paul may not be physically near to all of these churches and to all of these people, but his concern for their welfare is always with him. Even to the point that he says, and I've quoted this many times, that he says, I'm between a rock and a hard place because I want to go and be with Jesus. I want to be done here. but it's more needful for me to be here with you. This is the guy who was stoned and died and tells us in 2 Corinthians that he actually went to heaven. And had to come back. It's one thing to be on this side of it all and to say, I I want to be with Jesus. It's a whole different thing to have been there and to have been with Jesus and get sent back. But he says in love, as much as I want to be with Jesus and I want to be done with all of this, it's more needful for me to be with you. So I will stay. That's the heart of a shepherd. I don't have time for the second part. I'll just mention it quickly. The second part of the life of the church is the importance of knowing and being faithful to what is true. One of the worst things that could ever come out of your mouth is to someone else, my pastor said. It's horrible. It's well-intentioned, but it's wrong. It's flattering, but it's wrong, and it's dangerous. You should be able to say, God said, and this is where He said it, or at least be able to say what He said. but if your best argument is my pastor said or so and so said or i read so and so if your best argument is this this book now i'm not saying it's wrong to listen to me please listen to me i'm not saying it's wrong to listen to other people there are amazing teachers that we have access to today and i listen to them i'm not saying it's wrong to read books I'm pressing in on 100 books that I've read this year. Well, almost 100 last year. I'm starting over this year. I've got four books done for the month of January. I read, I read, I read. And they're not short books, 300 pages at least. I read. I love books. I give away books. But that's not our final authority. This is. We have to know what's true so that we smell the rat when it shows up. We have to know what God has said so that when someone comes along and says, you have to do for you to be right with God. And if you didn't do, you're not right with Him anymore. You say, something here smells funny. I can't put my finger on it quite yet, but something here smells funny. Ever walked into your house, right? This happens to us once every 10 years, you know. But I, we walk now. It happens more than that. But you walk into the house and you go, ah, "Something smells weird." I don't know what that is, but something smells weird. And then there's this semi quest to figure out where that smell is coming from. And sometimes it's just what you had for dinner last night. Sometimes something's in the trash. Sometimes, who knows? Maybe it's you. But You've, you want to know where that smell is coming from. And we need to know our, the word well enough. We need to know what God has said well enough that we say, he's a good man, but that's wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. And the response should not be, well, I think it's in there somewhere because it probably isn't. Now, I want to say this when you are hearing about how you should live or think, remember that any system of religion or teaching, and I don't care what denomination it is, and I don't care what the allegiances are, if there is a proclamation of law keeping or works righteousness to earn God's favor pre salvation or post salvation, it should be rejected as false. And I'm going to go so far as to say it should be rejected as heretical because it opposes the grace of God and it opposes the Gospel. And it doesn't matter how moral or how good the people seem to be. I am tired of hearing from people that, that they're inferring that Mormonism must be pretty good because look how moral they are. God doesn't care how moral you are. Salvation is not attained by how moral you are. I don't give a rip how moral America is. I care. The people are preaching it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and transformation through the Holy Spirit. We are not here to create a moral country or a moral city. Why are we shocked when unbelievers act like unbelievers? And we are not doing God's work to make it a more moral place. God has called us to the advance and proclamation of the gospel of grace centered in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and that transforms people and it turns the world upside down as we're told in acts man we get so excited and we spend so much energy on moralism and we think we're so good if we're moral and we're judaizers or Judaizers. According to Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, if anyone tells you that God will love you more, accept you more, exalt you more, use you more, apart from the work of Jesus... let that person let that teaching be damned by God himself. Is that serious? Galatians is controversial and Galatian cuts to the heart of what's going on in our hearts and what's going on around us in churches. We need to pray, God will open our eyes again fresh to the gospel. And in light of the gospel, help us to understand where we have gone away from grace. Let's pray. God, you know how I feel about this stuff. You know my past, you've used my past. You've, you've influenced me in great ways from the past, by like good men who meant well. But you also know how much I hate and despise religious teaching that leads us away from Jesus and away from grace. It kills our souls. It destroys a right understanding of you. It diminishes Jesus and the gospel. And yet, for decades, Father, I preached that garbage. And how many souls have I damaged? God, I pray that for myself, you would help me to smell the rat anytime it starts to creep up in my own heart, in my own mind, or begins to come out of my lips. Father, I pray that you would protect Northbrook from embracing the snake's theology. He wants to kill us, Father. There's life in Jesus. There's life in the Spirit. Help us by your grace to have hearts that love grace, that love Jesus, that love you and want to be like Jesus. In his name, amen.